This is a diet of Brussels. Well, here we are. 1,727 days, according to my calculations, since I started this podcast, which makes it the longest-running podcast on Brexit anywhere. Uh, we come to, well, what is potentially an end, and yet, in so many ways, is not. We are now just a couple of days before the UK leaves the European Union, uh, something that has been long in the coming, uh, and yet somehow still feels somewhat uh, unreal, uh, even if it is now a, a certainty. What I want to do in this uh, episode is just think a little bit about where we are, where we're going, and uh, I guess over the course of it I need to make a decision about whether this is the last episode or whether this is just one more key stepping stone uh, in the same way that uh, we had to think a little bit about what was going on in the wake of the referendum result itself back in 2016. Practically, we are now at the uh, last, the very last stage of uh, putting into effect the withdrawal agreement. We now have uh, the approval of the member states in the council. We have the complete ratification by the British government following pass, passing of the uh, withdrawal agreement uh, act as it is now. And the only thing that remains to be done today on Wednesday at lunchtime is the uh, approval of the European Parliament, which will happen this afternoon and uh, is not going to be any problem. And even if it is a problem, uh, it will be made not a problem before Wednesday, uh, before Friday. Now, at that point on Friday uh, night, uh, at midnight, European time, 11 o'clock UK time, the UK stops being a member state of the European Union and that is uh, irreversible and I think that's maybe the, the big thing to be clear about. Up until that moment it is within the power of the British government to say that it wants to stop and revoke Article 50, and it continues as a member state, and that is within its rights. After that moment, it is no longer possible. The withdrawal is done, is completed, and there is nothing that can be uh, done to undo it in uh, the narrow sense. If the UK wants to rejoin the European Union, then it is welcome to submit an application under under Article uh, 49. That's maybe a different podcast. Uh, And uh, the process of considering an application will begin. But the EU has made clear that that will be a standard uh, application, as much as these things are standard. And there's no fast tracking. uh, So it's a matter of uh, some years of checking that the UK hasn't diverged on uh, the necessary uh, rules and regulations in the interim. It would require the approval of all member states. Uh, There would be no uh, automatic rolling over of the uh, opt-outs and exemptions that the UK built up during its time as a member state. 
So it would be a country like any other in a way that it uh, hasn't been uh, up until now. The other big thing that changes at 11 o'clock on Friday night is that the will of the people is delivered. This uh, trope of political debate, you know, giving people what they voted for back in 2016 has been extremely powerful. And it's something which I think is sometimes neglected, that the force of the referendum, no matter what you thought about the legitimacy of the arguments, about the branding of the rules, the breaking of the rules in different cases, you you never got anywhere close to a situation where the legitimacy of the result was fundamentally in question. Yes, it was close. Yes, it was uh, unsatisfactory for uh, a large minority of the people. But it was still following, uh, in the broad terms, due process. And uh, it, uh, I think, was uh, always likely that it had to be followed through. And follow through it has been now. And that, that matters partly because of democracy, but partly because of politics, if that's not too fine a distinction. In democratic terms, the system relies on abiding by the results of decisions that are taken in a way that has been agreed. Not to have uh, followed through, I think, would have raised many questions. That's why, you know, we talked about second referendums, just to check that this is what people still wanted to do uh, and things like that, that, you know, it, there was a decision, but the only way you could overturn that decision would be an equivalent decision. Now, uh, that second referendum didn't happen. It won't happen. Uh, we had two general elections, uh, the second of which delivered a very clear majority for a party that said it was going to follow through on that. That matters in terms of uh, the systemic value of the system delivering on the decisions that people have been involved in. Um, and yes, that is a whole can of worms and one that I think we will have a lot of time to reflect and discuss on in the years and decades to come. But politically, it also matters because this now is the moment when the uh, question that was asked in 2016, do you want to remain or leave the European Union, will be done. That now the UK will no longer be a member of the European Union. And in that sense, the mandate of the referendum comes to an end. Now, uh, there's uh, an ambiguity here because in that coming to an end, uh, as we'll discuss, nothing uh, really changes for most people. So they may not feel that there's a change. Uh, but in... Uh, Rhetorical terms, uh, I think it still matters that uh, that has happened, that the argument that uh, those who disliked the uh, decision to leave uh, were anti-democratic, were uh, trying to stymie the system, uh, loses uh, its weight. That if uh, people now want to get back into the European Union, 
then we have to go the long way rather than any kind of shortcut. Now that matters because we now will have a situation where, as has been noted, uh, the uh, the success in arguing that we need to get Brexit done is that now uh, Brexit has to be done. And the government no longer has the uh, argument that it has been held back by Parliament, uh, which, as we've seen uh, in the last month, has become, um, well, not powerless, but just has really no... Uh, evidence scope to keep the government in check, not with the size of majority that uh, the Conservatives have now. It means so the Parliament can't hold uh, the government back, that the people can't hold Parliament back, the government back, that the law says that the UK has left, so the courts can't hold it back. In short, the government is in the driving seat. It is in a very strong position. And it is now uh, owning what comes. Now, uh, I think that matters because I think one of the real problems that we've had in the recent periods, certainly since the referendum itself, is a kind of uh, ability to kind of push problems off onto other people, that it's the fault of uh, them uh, rather than us. And that structural difficulty that we had, particularly from the 2017 general election, where no one faction was able to dominate the debate and the agenda, has now gone. Uh, and we now have uh, a uh, government that is uh, in a very strong position indeed. Let's maybe think then about what does change in practical terms. Uh, I've talked about those two big changes about ending membership and about ending the, the will of the people. As I've said, there will be a lot that doesn't look as though it is different on Saturday morning. Uh, there won't be uh, huge delays at border crossings, there won't be disruption to information flows, supply chains will continue, your access to European uh, information, data, services, all of those things continue. Uh, for the simple reason that we're now going to be starting a transition period. Now this uh, period basically replicates the entirety of membership for the UK without the UK being a member, with a number of small but very significant uh, differences, the most important of which is that the UK no longer is represented in the institutions or in decision-making. So that means no ministers in the council, it means no MEPs in the parliament, it means no judges in the court, it means no civil servants participating in working groups or decision-making uh, bodies or looking at drafts or thinking about uh, any of that part of the process. Officials will be able to be present in discussions where the UK is uh, affected by the decision, but they don't have a right to speak and they certainly don't have a right to vote. So the UK loses its voice and its vote, 
Uh, it also now has some powers to uh, not uh, apply parts of the common foreign and security policy uh, or uh, uh, there are elements of justice and home affairs that don't apply. So the European arrest warrant, some countries have already notified that they will not uh, honour requests from the UK for extraditions uh, during the transition period. But in the most uh, simplistic of terms, uh, nothing has changed. Uh, it's like the revenge of Theresa May. Um, now, the reason for this, and we've talked about this before, but it's worth remembering, is that uh, because we don't know what the future relationship is like, it didn't make sense to have a double transition from the end of membership to nothing, and then from nothing to the future relationship, which was going to be something more than nothing. So why not go from membership to the something more than nothing, rather than go via the route of nothing and start all over again? So the idea of the transition is uh, a bridge. Um, as has been observed, uh, typically with a bridge you need to have somewhere to bridge to, uh, and that's what we don't have. So that's the other thing that's happening during this transition period is the negotiating of that future relationship. And I think we will have to come back to that when we know some more about what both sides think that might be. And that should be in the next couple of weeks uh, that we have more sense uh, ahead of what now looks likely to be the start of uh, formal negotiations at the beginning of March. So transition is a much neglected part of this process that, you know, it's, um, it's a transition, you know, it's uh, uh, something which has had some attention but not much. But I think it's worth thinking about what the likely dynamics might be during this period. Firstly, it's going to be largely overshadowed by the negotiations that will take place um, on the future relationship. But it has effects of its own. Firstly, uh, for those who want a looser or a non-relationship with the EU, it will point out how the EU shapes our lives even when we're not members and that this isn't what we voted to leave for. And it's true, nobody voted to leave so that we could follow all the rules but not uh, have any representation. But it also uh, will be, I think, a, a harbinger of what is to come. The EU continues to make decisions uh, that shape and affect the UK, whatever relationship it might have. And so life on the outside might uh, start to become more of a reality for the UK than it has been otherwise. There's always this ambiguity in thinking about what the UK's future relationship might be because even if it doesn't get closely involved in formal relationships, anyone who wants to export uh, goods or services, or well, they won't be exporting services, but goods to the EU will have to follow the, the relevant uh, regulations on uh, standards, on working conditions, environmental protections, things like that. Um, if and it will have to then demonstrate that to the EU if it wants to sell products into that territory. So in the same way that many British businesses follow UK, US regulations as standards as well because they want to sell into that market, uh, regardless of what the relationship is, uh, if the UK remains uh, 
somewhere that exports into the EU, which it will, because that's more or less where uh, the largest part of its exports go, then uh, there will continue to be that effect, but now without the representation structurally of British interests. So uh, this is about uh, avoiding the need for checks uh, on those parts of goods, uh, which goes well beyond just thinking about tariffs and quotas. Um, and all of this is very much bound up uh, with the situation for Northern Ireland, which uh, is a particularly pressing case because the uh, protocol arrangements, the front stop arrangements, as they now are, will uh, kick in at the end of transition, and there has to be uh, a detailed mechanism for making that system in Northern Ireland work. Um, by force of necessity and by the requirement of the withdrawal agreement itself. Now, uh, nobody really knows quite how that works, uh, and very conflicting signals from the government uh, on that front. So there is here, I think, a difficulty that transition is simultaneously a period of waiting, but also a period where things really have to happen uh, and have to get ready for what comes next. Quite how that plays out remains profoundly uncertain. The EU will take, I think, a, a rather flexible approach. It would be, broadly speaking, happy to have a close relationship with the UK. But if the UK says that it doesn't want certain things, then the EU will respond in kind and say, well, fine, if that's what you want, uh, this is what we can offer. An additional complexity, I think, is going to be the bundling of different elements. Uh, we've talked about Northern Ireland as the big example, but fisheries is also going to be a major issue that needs uh, addressing um, as uh, everyone tries to work out quite how to unpack that particular issue. And remember here, there are different elements. There's uh, a matter of managing quotas, uh, managing access to fishing waters, uh, the question of fish processing, that you know, at the moment we have a lot of EU vessels landing catch in the UK for processing here and then uh, moving it back out to the EU27 where they actually eat the things. And then the whole question of uh, trade and market access uh, as well. Now those things are, I think are going to end up getting uh, bundled together uh, and they are things which don't have uh, simple uh, solutions uh, at any uh, level. Clearly, progress in one area affects progress in another, that there's likely to be a degree of uh, cross-linkage where um, inflexibility in one area might lead to inflexibility by uh, your counterparts uh, in another area. And uh, all of this, I think, is a recipe for some very difficult negotiations in the months to come. As far as what the rest of this year brings, the, the, the pattern looks like one of, well, actually it looks like one of crisis, to be honest. We 
we'll have a month now of setting out of stalls of what it is that we are prepared to uh, do uh, or to try for in uh, each case of the UK and the EU. From March we'll start those negotiations and then very quickly by the end of uh, June there has to be a decision from the UK about whether they want to ask for more time. Uh, technically that decision is made by a joint committee which is established uh, from the start of the transition period made up of UK and EU representatives in equal number and they are the ones who can make a decision uh, by the end of June about extension of the transition period. Now the Withdrawal Agreement Act says that any uh, ministers of the Crown uh, are not allowed to accept an extension um, which would seem to uh, negate the uh, provision uh, but at the moment we don't know who is going to be the member who are the members of uh, that committee so we don't know if they are ministers uh, if they are then uh, UK legislation would have to be changed uh, if they're not then uh, it wouldn't um, and we don't know uh, really uh, quite how this uh, might work in practice but certainly the timeline is inflexible um, and the difficulty here is the UK uh, and the EU won't have really got very far in their discussions to know whether they are likely to reach an agreement uh, within the time that's available. But let's assume that that time uh, extension isn't granted. In that case, what needs to happen is that some th elements need to be in place by the end of uh, the calendar year. Uh, particularly the ones around Northern Ireland, ones around fish. There are a number of other elements that have got timelines uh, on them. But most crucially, I think, will be the uh, trade agreements that would need to be uh, signed up to. Because this is a slightly different process um, from the ones that we've seen, well, actually, it's a very different process from the Article 50 uh, process where we had to have the ratification of the agreement before uh, the end of the period. In the case of what comes next, uh, because that will be done under different treaty provisions, uh, 207-218, uh, um, that can have a provisional implementation. So we could get to the end of the year and uh, we could have a signing of the agreement uh, with uh, an accord that there would be the provisional implementation of most of the provisions, subject to the subsequent ratification by um, member states, that would need to be all 27 member states including some subnational parliaments as well as the UK. Now the reason for that is that uh, international agreements generally are a major pain in the arse, uh, if I can use the technical expression, uh, to take the case of uh, the EU-Canada agreement, CETA, which gets wheeled out at this point. Uh, we recall that the Walloon parliaments in Belgium uh, held up the process for six months. But what probably is less clear is that still we haven't completed ratification. There are still a number of uh, member states, quite a few, that have still to submit instruments of ratification of that deal. So even though it's been in effect for uh, several years, uh, it's not actually fully ratified. So if we went on that basis, uh, we would already definitely be out of time because we need a lot more than a year for all 28 parties to do their stuff on the ratification. 
However, uh, as we will be discovering, uh, the world of international law is a lot more wild and woolly than we might uh, expect or hope. Uh, and at, with that in mind, it's uh, evident that uh, there is more capacity. So really, we can take negotiations really quite close up to uh, the Christmas period. Uh, and then from the 1st of January, you would start the new arrangements. Now, uh, where there are new arrangements, those would begin. Uh, where there aren't new arrangements to replace uh, what uh, is covered by transition, which would be a lot of areas, uh, then we fall to a no arrangement situation, unless you have some kind of general clause about rolling stuff over. That means that we have then uh, a new cliff edge uh, at the end of the year. Uh, just thinking about practicalities, one of the issues that we know from uh, Article 50 is that Christmas is the absolute worst time of year to be thinking about cliff edges. That if you're a business and you want to stockpile goods and materials just in case, uh, it turns out that Christmas uh, sees uh, zero capacity being available because, uh, oddly, people are buying lots of stuff for Christmas uh, presents, uh, for covering gaps in production, uh, disruptions to supplies because of holidays, and it is a really uh, terrible time. So if we are going to end up with a situation where there isn't a trade agreement in place uh, and the transition period comes to an end, then we're going to see some real difficulties. I think, however, let's not get ahead of ourselves, let's think a little bit about that uh, as we go through the year, and particularly once we know about the extension uh, request. So the year looks like it has a number of pinch points. It has a pinch point in the coming months where mandates get issued, uh, plans get made public. The EU looks set to be uh, uh, as uh, open and transparent in its process uh, on that as it was uh, with Article 50, which means that the UK's position will also become very apparent. We're then going to have a big... Uh, uh, moment at the start of March when we start the negotiations we see just how much uh, rhetoric uh, matters as opposed to substance. They're going to have another big moment in June as we uh, have arguments about extending not extending and then through the autumn we're going to see rising tensions as we get towards the end of transition uh, if that hasn't been extended which I think is 50-50 at this stage uh, uh, and a question about what can be done, what's prioritised, what is going to fall away. So, broadly, I think there is more than enough reason why I'm going to end up carrying on doing this podcast. Um, Brexit is not done. Brexit will not be done this year. Even if we end up with a trade deal at the end of the year, and we have uh, Boris Johnson saying people said it couldn't be done, and here we are, we've done it there will not be a comprehensive and stable new relationship between the UK and the EU at the end of this calendar year. Instead, there will be something, but more likely it will be something that says, well, we need to keep on working on these particular areas that we didn't quite get round to. So with all that in mind, again, I think I carry on trying this uh, in the way that I've been doing uh, for, well, 
quite a lot of uh, time. Uh, coming back to you periodically as we know more, uh, these kind of longer formats. Um, as always, uh, I'm very happy to answer your questions. Uh, if you have queries, you can reach us through the website, which is adietabrussels.com, or, or on Twitter, uh, at adietabrussels. Uh, you can uh, ask any questions. I don't think I've ever said no to uh, trying uh, to answer a question. Um, having said that, I seem to remember one listener did ask if I could uh, talk about literature and books that have been written about the subject. Maybe I'll do that. Um, when I have uh, a bit more time uh, to think about it, because there's an awful lot that's uh, out there that's really interesting uh, and might give some insight. Thank you again for all of your listening and for your comments and your feedback. And uh, I will talk to you uh, next time when the UK will no longer be a member state.